Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Bember. In this episode, we continue to look back at our Talent for Africa Forum. Convened by GBSN and its first corporate member, Ecobank Academy, this virtual forum was born out of the belief that no sector, business, government, education, or nonprofit can make meaningful progress alone, especially in such an incredibly diverse, complex, and dynamic environment as Africa. This virtual forum highlighted the importance of leadership, management, and entrepreneurship across sectors and across the continent. The forum aimed to explore the challenges of building education and development capacity and aligning it with the needs of a rapidly changing continent. The conversations were designed to review new opportunities for innovation and collaboration, especially across business and business schools, to overcome these challenges. In this, the penultimate session of the series, it was my pleasure to chair a panel on the business of sustainable development. I'd like to start uh, introducing our speakers. Their bios, of course, have all been made available to you uh, ahead of time. So hopefully I won't go on too long, but uh, worthy of introducing you to them. And I will invite them uh, to turn on their, their cameras as I do these introductions. First, uh, Mamocheti Pakeng is the Vice Chancellor of the University of Cape Town, where she has had previously served as Deputy Vice Chancellor for Research and Internationalization. Uh, previous to this, she was appointed uh, to serve as the Vice Principal for Research and Innovation at the University of South Africa for five years. And after serving three years as Executive Dean of the College of Sciences, Engineering and Technology, at the same university. Uh, she holds a PhD in mathematics education from the University of the Witwatersrand and is a highly regarded B1 NF NRF rated scientist with over 80 research papers and five edited volumes published. She's won numerous awards over the course of her career and her lifetime for her research as well as her community work, uh, including the Order of the Bobab uh, Silver, which was conferred upon her by the President of South Africa in 2016. Uh, in August of 2014, CEO Magazine named her the most influential woman academic in Africa. Uh, and in 2016, um, August, she was awarded the prestigious Businesswoman uh, of the Year Award in Education category. Uh, Kheti, as she is more uh, pop popularly known, is a member of the Oprah Winfrey Leadership Academy for Girls and is the founder of the Adopt Alert Foundation, a nonprofit organization that she started in 2004 and provides financial and educational support to students from township and rural areas to acquire higher education quality, uh, qualifications. Uh, Prof, a warm welcome to you. Thanks so much for, for making the time uh, today. Carl Manlin is Ecobank Foundation's Chief Operating Officer. In this capacity, he uh, works at the intersection of public, private, and civil society organizations. Uh, he's contributing uh, to Ecobank Foundation's shift to its core capabilities in financial systems and learning through Ecobank Academy. Over the past few years, he has led the implementation of the foundation's five-year strategy focused on health, education, and financial inclusion across Africa, and specifically in countries where Ecobank has operations. Carl is an economist who, while at the UNDP and the Global Fund worked with communities across Africa and contributed to systems development to improve public health financing. And in 2014, he worked on policy development and implementation of the economic transformation of the African continent as Mo Ibrahim Foundation Leadership Fellow at the Economic Commission for Africa. Subsequently, he managed the private sector fund created by Africa's private sector in collaboration with African Union, the Economic Commission for Africa, and the African Development Bank for Africa's response to the fight against Ebola in West Africa. And last but certainly not least, he holds a uh, master's in public administration from Harvard's Kennedy School, and in 2015 was awarded one of the highest civilian honors for his contribution to the improvement of health financing in the Republic of Benin. He's also a 2016 Aspen Institute New Voices Fellow. Carl, it's good to see you again. Uh, a warm welcome to you. And certainly, last but not least, uh, Tabneet Suri is the Louis E. Selly Professor of Applied Economics and Associate Professor of Applied Economics at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Uh, expertise is the role of technology in sub-Saharan Africa. Tabneet is also the Editor-in-Chief of VoxDev, a uh, Scientific Director for Africa for JPAL, co-chair of the Agricultural Technical Adoption Initiative at JPAL, chair of the Digital Identification and Finance Initiative at JPAL Africa, and a faculty 
Faculty Research Fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. She holds a BA in Economics from Cambridge University UK and an MA in International and Development Economics and a PhD in Economics both from Yale University. Longer than I intended, but certainly well worth it. A warm welcome uh, to all of you. Uh, I can't thank you enough for making uh, availing yourselves. And I should, you know, declare my interest at the start and Tevneet was made aware of this when we had our brief little logistics session last week. She's outnumbered by UCT, University of Cape Town people. Uh, I'm a graduate of the University of Cape Town. Carl is a graduate of the University of Cape Town. And uh, the prof or VC, as I'm likely to call her throughout with no disrespect to anyone else, just because she actually conferred my last degree, um, uh, is, uh, of course, the vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town. Um, Rob, but, I do wear a tiny little bit of a UCT hat. Our yeah. PayPal Africa office is at UCT, and I'm the scientific director there. So maybe a 10% UCT hat? Maybe I can we're, get away we're, with that? We'll give it to you. And my, my personal feelings aside, of course, uh, each one of you represent uh, the Global Business School Network in various ways, UCT's GSB, MIT Sloan, and of course, Ecobank Academy, all members of the Global Business School Network. So you're all very, very welcome for, for what is going to be, once again, a broad ranging conversation. And just because of the limits of time, um, it's going to be hard to get into the nitty gritty of it all. But I'm wondering, Carl, if we can start with you to kind of level set in terms of the work of uh, Ecobank Foundation and certainly uh, through the Academy, if we look at just the numbers and, and what's already been theorized, speculated, estimated as a result of COVID and you know, 60 million more people expected to be pushed into poverty um, so, uh, around the world, a large chunk of that being said to be Africans. Um, COVID certainly has done no one any favors uh, without saying the least, but how much has this taken us back or set us back and exposed perhaps gaps that we haven't seen before. Thank you, Rob, and um, very good to be here with everybody. Um, I think it's a good starting point. What this pandemic has done is to make us realize that it is above our social conversation. And how do we ensure that through partnership and my favorite SDG is SDG 17, which is actually looking at how do we bring different parts of a community to solve problems. So if we think about the issue around poverty, can we flip it and say, how do we enable prosperity on the continent? And what does it take to enable prosperity? That conversation around prosperity, I think is a much more interesting one because then we, find, we start to think about the different building blocks. One of them being health, one of them being education. And when you combine these two, then you say, okay, how do we make sure that people are actually healthier, better educated for the purpose that we want for this continent, which is one of them, the transformation. And what does transformation look like? It has different aspects. We know that agriculture is an important piece. So do we create jobs along the value chain of, agric of agriculture in Africa? And if we do so, there are ramifications in terms of, uh, of the continent, in terms of what we can do. My final point on this, in terms of how do we change and enable prosperity, is to start thinking into the African continental free trade area that have just been uh, launched on the 1st of January. And by doing so, we are in the process of thinking about how does somebody that produces cotton in Lesotho can sell it to somebody in Cape Verde. And the process in between requires infrastructure, technology for us to be able to do so. So yes, there are more people that are suffering, but it is an opportunity for us to reframe the debate and think about enabling prosperity. And we'll of course be touching on these various subjects using the various backgrounds and expertise of our speakers that goes without saying i've just seen a comment come through in the chat and i, and I should have said at the outset and i'll say it now um, we will be recording the session so a, a video recording will be made available uh, after the fact as well so if, if we stick call with that that health component how does that tie into your work at the Echo Bank foundation i say tie in is really a, cent a central uh, component of of what it is that you do well, we have Make the Connection, which is a campaign that we launched to educate people around chronic malnutrition. It touches on health, education, and financial inclusion. And I think the education piece is the most important. Most people are not aware of chronic, what chronic malnutrition is. Chronic malnutrition affects children by the age of two. And if we don't have the neural connections by then, it means that the investment and the demographic dividend that we're expecting will not materialize. The second element is around health. How do we ensure that the mother is as well protected as the child that will be born? So you have those two elements. And the third one is around financial inclusion. How do you get 
individuals around the continent. Last estimate talks about 170 million Africans that have disposable income. To think that they can actually pull their resources to solve some of the continent challenges. And the foundation is looking at the broad range of tools that the bank has, has including the EcoBank Academy, to put forward a value proposition based on partnerships, where we can actually bring different parts of society to believe that it is also the responsibility, even if it's one dollar, one rand, or one CFA franc from, from Togo, where I live, that by pulling these resources, we can make a change in our community. And Prof, looking at from, from the health perspective, looking at the institution of the University of Cape Town that you lead, as well as your own uh, foundation and those SDGs of quality education and certainly equity uh, in education and bringing more women uh, to the fore and bringing more women and children and girls specifically through the education system. When you're working from the top down, so to speak, as you are, and I, and I know, of course, that UCT leadership, uh, all women leaders, how, how deep down into that system are you able to go sitting at a higher education uh, institution when you're looking at the levels of poverty and trying to bring children just through, you know, secondary school and primary school levels? How, how much more challenging does that make your job? And how are you able to address that? You're on mute, Prof. Thank you. Um... Uh, uh, your question is very relevant, but actually the issue is it doesn't make the job challenging as such. It makes the job more relevant. It's how you make the job more relevant and important uh, and actually forces us. I mean, the, the challenges that we're facing, whether, with, whether we're going to achieve the SDG 2030 agenda or deal with poverty and inequality, for me, forces us to ask the question, What's our role here? Why are we here? How are we making a difference? You know, and, 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 and so it, it, it asks us a difficult question about um, our relevance. And, and so a question such as, I mean, I've been saying to colleagues that, you know, over the years, the world has changed so much. I mean, of course, COVID has put more pressure on the world and, and has forced us to live differently, but the world has been changing over the years since you know the the the, the industrial revolution and, and 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 in a way we as human species have become a revolutionary force um you know we've become the the planet changing species and we are changing the destiny of the of, of the planet and so we as higher education or anyone involved in education needs to ask Given all these, the changes that have happened in the world, shouldn't we be teaching in new ways? Shouldn't we be teaching differently? So we should think about what is it that we teach, how we teach, what is it that we research, how we research, whether it's about the content or the partnerships or even the involvement of women. And, and even as we ask those questions, I mean, if I start with the, with the issue of gender, I can say, well, if actually excluding women worked, then maybe we wouldn't be here. So maybe we should be saying, well, we're here. Uh, isn't it time that we open up a little bit and, and allow different kind of leaders? Because it's the same question of the world has changed so much. So perhaps we need to lead in new ways. We need new voices. We need more diversity and inclusion in our leadership, in our research, um, in the way we do research, in, in, in the questions that we ask. And, and, and also, um, that, that points to the importance of social responsiveness in universities. So for us at UCT, that's very key because as we ask ourselves these questions about our relevance, what we teach, how we teach it and who does it, we, 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 we look around us and say, well, we, there's no way that we're going to survive if the world doesn't, but the world starts with our immediate uh, surroundings. So what, what are we doing to shape the destiny of the communities around us. And, and, and that forces us to do more socially responsive work. And we have strengthened over the, the years our social, social responsiveness work because we're asking ourselves these critical questions. We are asking ourselves those questions as a result of the challenges that we are facing, the world is facing right now. So it's, it's 
uh, that's the challenge as I, as I, as I like to turn it. It's, 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 it's more of the challenge that we can't avoid. We've got to face as a university. And so Neet, your, your area of, of expertise being technology, it's often you know, spoken about as this holy grail of that's how we're going to achieve this, this, this array and multitude of changes necessary to, to move Africa forward. And in fact, perhaps puts Africa in the perfect position, um, almost starting from scratch to build a new and a fresh using technology. Where, where is the landscape as you see it? And I know, again, it's a broad question in using technology as a driver to start solving these myriad of issues as we work towards, uh, you know, in this, which was the, the decade of action as we uh, approach 20, uh, 2030. Where is technology and, and where should it be on the, on the continent? Thanks, Rob. Um, big question. <laughs> um, look, I think there is a piece that we think technology is important and it's not just technology. I mean, I think we should be asking what is technology for us on the continent, right? So some of the most successful digital technologies, they're not kind of built somewhere else. Yes, cell phones were built somewhere else, but the local adaptation of those technologies to local markets needs and skills is the important piece. So I think it's very easy to say technology is important, right? In economics, we think most of the differences in or large shares of the differences in growth rates across countries is because of technology, sure but that's not a prescriptive thing to say, right? I think what we see on the ground is that the local adaptation is almost essential. When we think of agricultural technologies, they're kind of largely not succeeding. The reason is there's not enough local adaptation to local climate soil conditions, right? In the US, we adapt technology in agriculture repeatedly, right? If you think of precision agriculture, I have these machines that for every square meter are checking do I vary the quantity of fertilizer for a square meter, right? So I think that analogy, I think is very salient. The local adaptation piece is essential and something that you know, we need to do as communities on the ground, right? If you think of the, the you know, I've done a bunch of work on mobile money, um, you know, the Kenya version is called M-Pesa, which I think everybody in the world has now heard of, you know, it reduces poverty in Kenya. It's actually had a significant effect on poverty as we show in our work. Um, but, you know, it didn't come from somewhere else. It was built to the local context, right? They have this funny story of when they launched it, it was a completely different product and they piloted it and realized, no, no, people want to use it for something else, not the use case we had in mind. And they switched the use case, right? Um, and so I think that piece is not just do we need technology, but any technology that we get from somewhere, cell phones, whatever it is, that it has to be accompanied by this piece of local adaptation to the context and the environment. And that piece is in our hands and needs to be in our hands, right? On the continent. Um, I say our because I'm actually Kenyan. So just as a warning. <laughs> uh, so let me, it is, I, that's why I could say our, I have the passport to say our. <laughs> um, not South African, but hey, you know, we can't have everything, right, Ron? Um, so I think that that's the more interesting question for me. We know technology is important. We know it explains big differences across growth rates. I think the piece that we need to work on more is kind of the local context and the local adaptation. And where we see that happen, we see successes, right? Mobile money has certainly been a success. There's been other successes. I think the other advantage that cell phones have brought to the continent. I just want to build off something Carl said earlier, which is, you know, one piece of the pandemic is I think we've started to realize as a government, we need to think about social protection. And South Africa has a bunch of this, but a lot of other countries don't. When something big happens, there needs to be a social protection piece, right? We need to build resilience, not just poverty and growth rub. We need to build a, a system that not only do people do better, but they're also resilient to bad events, right? Either through their own actions or through a social protection. And actually, I think a lot of successful social protection cases during COVID have been through technology. Togo rolled out cash transfers over the cell phone to almost everybody, right, Carl? Like stunning, right? I, it was just amazing to watch. And it is possible because you have this technology. Imagine if I had to deliver social protection Rob door to door during COVID, this would be like the worst policy in the world, right? Um, and so the technology is enabling us now to realize we can do these other things that were so costly to us before, 
but we have to kind of also take that step to build the other add-ons on this, right? Um, and I'll, I'll finish with one thing, which is, you know, MPES has certainly been a success. If you think about it, every household in Kenya has a digital account on their phone. I mean, that was, I wanna say 15 years ago, almost 14, they started something like that. Um, and there's not a ton of build on over the top. Feels like we're missing opportunities to say, hey, if everybody has a digital account, I can do so much with this, right? Togo is the perfect example of this. You know, they kind of said, we're in trouble. We need to help people. Oh yeah, cell phones, we'll do it, right? I think we need more responses, more things like that, where you can suddenly have this light bulb go on that we actually have a set of rails across the continent pretty much. And we should be thinking more about how to adapt these to provide all sorts of things to people, right? And you can think of a million. I'll stop there and hand back to you, Rob. And, and, and so Carl, because Togo has been invoked a, a number of times there. Where, I had where, to. Where, where's the, and we welcome it, where, where's the, if there is the, the kind of stumbling block between African nations of then learning, improving, taking, uh, copying, making it better. I, I don't think we're, we're necessarily seeing enough of that and not, not necessarily operating enough in, in whether regional blocks or in, in unison. Uh, would you agree? I mean, why these, these examples that Tevni uh, has cited so successfully in Togo, why are we not seeing more of that proliferate? So let, I would, I'll start by taking it back to my time when I was a UCD student. When I arrived there back in 99, there were three of us from Cote d'Ivoire, then we were four. But there was something significant in studying at UCT and in South Africa at the time, because the country was thinking about how do we deal with majority and how do we provide social economic transformation for the majority? And that question stayed with me and really shaped the way I looked at things. Today, when we're thinking about the continent, the majority of Africans are in rural areas but we continue to think about the minority in urban areas because they have affordability. And that's a fundamental issue on how we think about these issues. The example of Togo was to say, many people have a cell phone. They don't have a smartphone, but we can use a USSD model. So the USSD basically a short code that you type on your phone. Like when you used to have a Nokia 3310, star 147 hash, I think that was a Vodacom at the time in South Africa to get the message and using that technology to solve problems. You know, technology has to have a purpose. And in Togo, you know, obviously it was, it was to solve a problem in that context. Why we're not hearing more of these stories is because we are challenged with our own narratives of what we think are measures of success. We are very quick to look at what's coming from outside and define it as success. But every day when I come to the office, there's a lady sitting in the corner selling breakfast for thousands of people, hundreds of people that walk around. Isn't she an entrepreneur? But she will never be labeled as an entrepreneur because she doesn't have what we call today entrepreneurship. But if you look at the definition of entrepreneurship, it's somebody who's trying to solve a problem in society. And that woman realized that there are people that are going to work at all times of the day. They don't have time to have breakfast at home. I'll provide the breakfast. And how do we make sure that this woman has access to digital financial services platform so that she can pay the uh, suppliers? Because if we leverage the work that she does and the trust that she has built with her suppliers, she is better able to sell the idea of digital payments than any banker would be able to do. And that for me is where the transformation will come from. Not from these big, nice ideas where we think about so much about the future, and not much about the present. So if we start to think about what is the Africa that we have today and what does it look like? It is young, but we have chronic malnutrition. It is also old because the aging population on the continent is also growing, but we're not speaking about the aging population. And that for me is because we, are, we got caught up in the immigration debate of thinking about young people leaving the continent. Yet the data shows that most Africans actually migrate within Africa. So the point is we have to start now to know our narrative, understand where countries are in the development process and really appreciate the transformation that is happening at the on the continent from a governance perspective, from a policy perspective. And finally, 
the challenge that we have is that the cost of capital on the continent is high because we are, we are perceived as being risky. So if you can't afford the debt that you need to transform, then you have a problem because there are so many issues that you, you cannot face, yet the rest of the world can print the money. And we have this dynamic where you see the transformation on the other side, but we struggle to see this transformation here on the continent. And I think it's time that we start to look at those changes on the continent, Togo, Benin, and the other countries on the continent. And, and when we look at, uh, Prof, the Africa is so diverse, it's so cliche to say, but I mean, we, we're all very well aware of how very different, uh, different regions and countries within this continent is. And you have, you know, UCT sitting at the, at the tip of the continent as, as, you know, the leading university on the continent. When we talk about equity in education and certainly bringing more women uh, through the educational system also, but also looking at equity in terms of what is being taught. Uh, what is being taught, not just about South Africa, but about the different perspectives coming from the rest of the continent. How do we best go about as a higher educational institution using UCT as a model to ensure that those various aspects are reflected, that those various stories, as, as Carl has just mentioned, are reflected as we work towards those, well, the sustainable development goals and beyond? Mm. Thanks, Rob. Um, it, it, definitely important. I mean, I, I, I appreciate the comments that Carl made about uh, our narratives of development or what counts as development to us. I mean, I, I think it's a very important conversation uh, in my view, and I'll come to your question, Rob. It's a very important conversation because uh, in my view, it does have implications for what we teach our young people uh, 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 to be responsible citizens of the world so that we don't perpetuate the culture of destroying our environment you know but but it's something that i feel passionate about because you know even to deal with poverty and inequality as we deal with poverty and inequality we reproduce class materialism and the culture of greed and and whatever you know so so how do we change the narrative i think i think it's a big issue for me but but the question that you are raising is important so we at uct in 2015 we became a founding member of um, uh, the African Research Universities Alliance. I mean, and talking about how do we do this? How do we bring our strengths together as universities on the continent? So we were a founding member of the African Research Universities Alliance, which is a network of 16 of Africa's leading universities. Um, They're based in nine different countries with a common vision to greatly ex expand and enhance the quality of research done in Africa by Africans. Our concern was the fact that we, 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 we don't want to be a continent, we don't want to serve as data, um, and, and that we, we just collaborate with people from outside and we think with institutions from elsewhere in the world and we think that's advancement. We felt that there's value in having research done in Africa by Africans. That doesn't mean we don't collaborate with other people, but we wanted to bring our forces together. And I won't go into de debate about how we work the criteria that we use to say what are the continent's leading universities, but there are 16 and only five of them are from South Africa. And it was deliberate to make sure that we get voices from other parts of the continent, the North, East, West, and so on. And, 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 and in this way, we are pulling our limited resources as, as, a, as, as institutions on the continent to generate a critical mass that could more effectively support our growing numbers of researchers by developing African capacity whilst we attract partnerships with researchers outside, outside, uh, outside Africa. And, and we decided deliberately as the Alliance that the work that we do will make sure that the work that we do aligns with the sustainable development goals. Um, and also we, we, we also, secondly, that was the first, the second was that we also deliberately decided that we're going to focus on issues uh, that we identify as the continent's wicked problems. And our view is that if we, we, we can lead in those areas, we, we, we can actually uh, be of value to the world because Frankly speaking, many of the problems of Africa are problems of the world. It just sometimes takes time for the world to recognize that they have the same problems as well. And so we've got, we've got Arua centers of excellence and, and, and we at UCT host one that focuses on, 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 on poverty and inequality. 
and another that focuses on climate and development. There are others that focus on infectious diseases, on, on, on food security and so on around the continent. And the criteria was that we've got to have collaborations with the, within the, 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 the alliance with three, it should be a collaboration of at least three different African countries. And, and, and that for us as UCT, Arua is our key alliance, our key network of universities, particularly because of what it means for the continent, that it gives us an opportunity to draw our strengths together, to make a difference in areas that matter. And so I think that's one way in which we can, we, we, in, in that way, can we get research that we do, but how we teach as well, because when you look at the work that we're doing in the two, for example, centers of excellence at UCT that are hosted by uh, uh, Arua, um, uh, some of the work that we do is located, uh, has given rise to um, master's programs, for example, and MPhil in, in social justice and MPhil in um, uh, uh, development studies and, and stuff like that. So, so it's work that it, it, it can influence what we teach the programs that we, 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 we introduce, but also the research that we do and how we do it. We collaborate in these, pro in these initiatives with people, with universities elsewhere in the world. And what is of importance is the, the, that they come to collaborate on our project, our agenda, the African agenda. And so we lead the project. Uh, we recognize the story, but we lead the project it's almost different to how it often happens that it's the other way around, that we are just collaborators and not leaders. And in this case, we have African institutions doing that. And I think it's one way in which universities can pull their strengths together, universities on the continent, to make an impact in areas that matter. And on the, the sort of neat, sticking with the, the, the research and, and what comes out of the continent and what's driven by the continent, obviously on, on Vox Dev, Dev the, 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 um, where, where your editor, you know, you were saying that, you know, the whole outlook is to take these large hefty chunks of research and to put them out into more kind of digestible um, pieces to be, to be more broadly understood. Are you seeing a similar kind of pattern of research coming out of the continent by, by Africans and actually being put into practice and being used? Yeah, so thanks, Rob. Um, let me do a shameless plug for VoxDev, which I edit. Um, so a couple of years ago, we decided that um, we needed a better way of communicating in general. This is not just for Africa, everywhere in the world and communicating with users of evidence, right? I mean, every developing country has a limited number of resources, Rob, that's the reality of the world. And you should not be spending resources on things that don't work and you should be spending resources on things that work. That's the ultimate goal of our research in some sense is to provide evidence so that people can make policy based on real evidence rather than whatever they think might, be, might work, right? Um, you know, it touches on what Carl said. We often think of urban areas and not the rest of the con the you know the rest of the country in a particular case. And, you know, ninety percent of the population lives in rural areas, or eighty, right, in some countries. Um, so basically, a couple of years ago, we built this platform called VoxDev. Please take a look. It's voxdev.org, um, and the idea was to take kind of dense academic papers, which are like fifty or sixty pages, which no policymaker either wants to read or has the time to read, Rob. And if they do, then I don't know what they're doing. They shouldn't be a policymaker, right? And so we decided we were gonna try and condense these into non-technical blogs of about a thousand words at most, you know, some videos, some podcasts, just a bunch of different ways of communicating with stakeholders that would use this. And it doesn't have to be just policymakers, right? We call it research into practice, not research into policy, because actually it's useful for the private sector too. Like there's a whole set of articles around business trainings and which ones work and which ones don't, for example, right? So I think that was the aim of the platform is to try and bring research to the stakeholders that might be interested in using it. And that's uh, governments, policymakers, private sector, nonprofits, consumers, instead, you know, is digital credit good or bad? Should you take a digital credit loan or not, right? So that was the aim of VoxDev. We've been running for a few years now. Um, you know, what's been really great is we've had a really great response in some developing countries, but, you know, we're still struggling to kind of get more out there and 
you know, kind of get a, a wider set of both contributors and readers uh, for us. Um, and we keep trying, so please send us stuff. Um, we tend to, you know, we tend to solicit stuff if we see it, if we see it at a conference, if we see it at somewhere else, uh, but we also take stuff. So if you have a paper that you think would be a good fit for VoxDev, you can just send it to editor at voxdev.org and it'll go through, you know, the editorial process because there's an editorial process and then we'll get back to you. We're usually pretty quick. It's usually a couple weeks, a few weeks turnaround depending on, you know, the editors. Um, but, you know, I would love to see more stuff and we keep asking for more stuff. And, you know, Rob, I was never on Twitter until VoxDev <laughs> because it's one way of connecting with different types of audiences, right? It just is the reality. And so I was just like, do I have to do social media? And they went, yes, you do. Welcome to the world. This is the world you must be in to have need. Um, so please, if you're watching and you're an academic and you have work, send it to us, please. Um, we do get a lot of stuff from, you know, the, the usual suspects, India, China, as you can imagine, right? Because they have better access in some sense, right? Um, but yeah, you know, we would love to get more stuff. Um, we do see a lot of work on the continent, for mm -hmm. sure. We're seeing a lot of work on Africa and thinking carefully about, you know, economic progress there in particular dimensions, education, health, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been nice to see, but we'd like to see more use of the platform in Africa by policymakers. You know, the other use that's actually been a surprise to us is uh, undergraduate education. A lot of people are using our articles because you can print them off as a PDF um, that looks quite nice. And so I think that's the other use that would be great to get more of. A lot of American schools are, or American professors are using it in undergraduate education because it's a really good way to read a review, right? You don't want undergrads to read 10 papers, but you can get them to read four box dev articles because they're a page and a half, right? And so it gives them a much better sense of a field and a field of knowledge than one paper, right? By the time they get to one paper, they're like, oh my God, that's only one, right? So I think that's another use that would be great to see more of. And, are there, are there particular, particular areas as it pertains to the continent that you're seeing more research, just from your kind of aggregator point of view, vantage point, yeah. that this is clearly where, where a lot of the research is happening as you experience it? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think we struggle, suffer a little from the Carl phenomenon, which I'm going to call it now. You know, we've seen a lot of research on digital stuff now in the last few years, just because it's kind of hot topic on cell phones, all this stuff. Uh, there's quite a bit of work on agriculture, but unfortunately, we don't have great solutions. We found lots of things that don't work, which, by the way, Rob, is really valuable, right? I, I don't want to discount the learning that things don't work. Um, and then there's quite a bit of stuff on education and health. Um, I think the one missing piece I feel at least from editing this and just in general is, you know, we see a lot of stuff around health, but not really health systems, true deep health systems. And I think, you know, with COVID and some of the new, you know, data coming out of South Africa, out of Nairobi, you know, we can do the social protection piece like Togo did. We need something we need to think about health systems, right? Like really, I, I don't mean a hospital, I mean a system, right? And that piece of infrastructure to me is just so crucial, so, so crucial right now. Um, and so, you know, we're having conversations around the university about where does, you know, what is COVID gonna do to our research, right? And people think there's gonna be a lot more work on immunology and all these things. If I had to pick something I'd like to see more work on in Africa, it's health systems. Because I think that's what has, I think that's what COVID has partly revealed is that our health systems need a ton of investment infrastructure wise and, and a ton of thinking about how to reach people, right? Um, population density is quite low in Africa relative to India or the US or something, right? And so I think we need to, you know, think carefully about how we build these and how we deliver you know, vaccines to the entire population and testing to the entire population, because clearly that was, is not, was not done, right? From any of the antibody testing done in South Africa or Nairobi, right? So that's a piece I wish we had more of. Of course, we didn't realize really we needed it until this happened, right? So it's not a criticism. It's just, 
I think this pandemic has revealed how we're missing a piece of true integrated system stuff, right? In some way yep. and understanding how to build those and connect those and deliver stuff through those. And that I want to stick with it with the SDG three health and well-being, of course, um, and go to to Jean um, uh, Hattigan. I hope I pronounced it correctly. Jean uh, Hattigan was the chairman of AfriMed Network in Massachusetts. Um, posed this question on the chat. And of course, I encourage you to keep your questions coming through. Uh, our foundation is working in Cote d'Ivoire to provide basic healthcare to rural villages by bringing mobile medicine to these communities from a uh, location in Yamasukra. Uh, we are coordinating a number of underfunded local NGOs as a clearinghouse as well. How best can we help these NGOs to do better to share the information across the continent? I, I don't know, Prof or Carl, both of you, I mean, I know in South Africa, we're struggling with this, you know, this health system question, whether or not um, an NHI, a national health insurance, uh, is the way for us to go, uh, seeing examples do well around the world and seeing others fail. How do you see, from an educational point of view, Prof, maybe start with you, what, what is your overall view on a health system for any singular country and then maybe to touch on, on the question that's come through as well as how we better connect these NGOs to get their message out who are ultimately doing the work that perhaps uh, states should be doing. Yeah, I'll go to the to the issue of how do we share the message. Yes. I'll leave the health question to the specialists. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I, I think I think we've got to do all we can. There's power in social media. And I know that it doesn't reach everybody. It doesn't reach everyone, but it reaches more people than we've ever been able to as the world. Um, and, and so I, I think that, you know, I would go there. And, and the issue is how do you share the message? Because sometimes you can share uh, 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 the message or the information, but the way you share it actually makes it, you know, not worth looking at or it will miss a lot of people. And I think we've got to, I mean, this, the, 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 we've got to get out of our formal spaces or what we think are the, the spaces we have to be in and, and, and make our messages so accessible that anyone who like, People should not, people who've never been to university should never feel that they can never listen to me because I'm a professor. Uh, they should discover that I'm a professor uh, somewhere along the way whilst they are absorbed in what I'm doing or saying. I, I don't know if you get what I'm saying. And for me, that's, it's important in terms of how do we share the message? I mean, we've got to um, uh, coordinate it because, because otherwise people just lock lockdown and then they, they don't listen. So I think I think we should do that. I think cell phone technology allows us also to share other other ways, even in in, net, in areas where there is a network infrastructure. So so we should use these new technologies that reach people from every I mean there's more people with, with cell phones now in Africa than than we've ever had before. And and that should be a way in which we share we share this this information. So I would I would go there. I mean, I, of course, I'm fascinated by another of of Jean's question, but we can go there later. Um, uh, perhaps if someone wants to take the question on on health systems. Call, call, that, that's, that's, that someone is you. <laughs> Not the expert, but a contribution here. The first target in terms of who should get access to this information. I, the Ivorians, we're talking about Cote d'Ivoire, Ivorians like myself, that are in Cote d'Ivoire that are in the diaspora. We can continue to send remittances to help our cousin or our nephew to go and be treated. We have to pull our resources to help the Ministry of Health to put health centers where we don't have any, because that's where the change is gonna come from. You can blame government for a few things, but often we find that we don't go and speak to the government in terms of what are the plans for the health system and how can we best help. We have great ideas and then we'll go and build something somewhere. So there is that element which is important. And in the work that we're doing at the moment in talking about private sector organization in terms of in the fight against malaria, a lot of them want to go and buy bed nets. And sometimes we remind them that, by the way, last year, the country had a 95% coverage in the bed net distribution. So the bed nets that you buy will be nice for your Monday paper but you're not changing anything in the situation. 
And I think that's an important point. Are we aware about what the Ministry of Health or the government is trying to do? The second element for me has to do with the fact that when it happens in the community, and it happens very well, and I'm paraphrasing a famous Kenyan professor that was behind the idea of community health. When it happens in the community, it happens in the nation. When it happens in the nation, it happens in the continent. And that's where we need to start, I think. How do we make sure that our brothers and sisters, our mothers and sisters in rural areas that are focusing on agriculture are healthy and educated for the education that they need to improve? Once we address these elements, then the conversation about the sophisticated healthcare and health system that we need is because we lack the prevention. So because people do not prevent for some of the diseases, we end up with complications. And if we can avoid that part, it will probably cost us less by building more resilient system because people will focus on prevention. When we look at tying into the health piece, I mean, all these pieces ultimately tie in and we look at uh, climate action, another one of the other SDGs and food insecurity. Um, uh, I was doing some reading this morning on Vox Dev and there's a, there's a latest piece uh, on the top that talks about this, this conflict that's coming between farmers and herders um, and, and, and how much that conflict is going to be in increasing by, by 2040 as a result of you know, lack of crops and just because of what's happening on the continent with the climate. How do we ensure that we don't lose sight of what is here and what is coming as it relates to climate, that these, whatever we do that that's built in to literally ensure that the development is sustainable. Um, how, how do we, huh, I, I don't even know what, what the question is to me, just, I feel like we're, we're not ensuring enough when we build these systems that climate is top of mind. You're not sure, Rob? Look, <laughs> Climate is an existential threat for all of us. Yeah. Whether I'm sitting here in Cambridge, Mass, the predictions are going to wipe out bits of, you know, bits of city right down the street from me. I mean, this is an existential threat for all of us. I truly believe that. Whether it's here in the U.S. or anywhere else, think of Bangladesh, think of Jakarta, think of pick a pick a place, right? Um, and I think it's getting late. It's getting really late, Rob. Um, you know, I think it's the, I don't have a good answer for you, unfortunately. I will say this, since this is DBSN, I, I think it's time for the private sector to start to think about how they get together and do something, take some action. Because governments are, you know, elected every four or five years, they're focused on the short term. They're not, it's just like, I just want to get reelected. I have two terms, I'm out. That narrow window of decision-making, unfortunately, I think takes away from this kind of long-term threat, right? Um, so I don't mean to sound depressing, but I do think like this is the time for the private sector to step up, get together and say, we are the ones who need to lead this action because we have a long-term view of the world or at least a longer-term view of the world than maybe government, right? Uh, so I would, I would say that time is here. And we don't really see it. And by the way, I'm not talking just about the continent anywhere, right? In a grand sense. And so I don't mean just like, oh, let me just do some recycling in my company. No, no, I mean serious action. So I think that's one piece that I think I really wish we could coalesce the private sector around to sort of start to think about what are the actions that we can take to sort of mitigate some of this. I will say this just on a hopeful note, I think Human beings are the most innovative, creative people we know, maybe the only ones, right? But we have this ability to innovate and create, right? We, you know, um, the vice chancellor mentioned the industrial revolution. We have been through many periods in history and come out of it. And so I have hope that we'll innovate ourselves out of us in some way. And, you know, universities are working on these things all the time actively. But I do think there's a role for sort of private sector to step up and say, hey, you know what? Maybe it's time for us to try and think about how we join to, to sort of start to think about this, this thing that's coming our way. Um, and Rob, it's not just, it's, it has effects on health, right? There's lots of 
you see effects on infant mortality, on long-term health, lung health, whatever you want, on conflict. Uh, I mean, pick an outcome on yields, like just pick something, right? And I think we've amassed this amount of research showing that it's, ha it's already having big effects, right? Um, we see the ver variability in weather and this has huge effects, right? You'll have a, a drought that destroys crops, floods that destroy crops. I mean, it is happening around us already. And I think, you know, governments should start to think about this, of course, but I also think there's a big role for everybody else to sort of try and coalesce around an agenda and around a set of actions that will start to protect us, hopefully. And Sorry, I'm not, so I don't have a great like silver bullet answer to this because if we did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'm, I'm what, what Tabnit is saying. I mean, Tabnit is right. I mean, we are the most innovative species in the world, but we are, we are innovating ourselves into destruction. That, that's the thing. I mean, and sometimes I think, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, would things have been better if we were, we were not this innovative? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we, we you know, we, 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 we are literally destroying um, uh, the world and ourselves in a way. And, and, and so that's why I worry about uh, what does this mean for education? How can we help today's youth? How can we prepare them? Uh, you know, we can, you know, how, how, how do we do that so that the current generation realizes that with the innovation, we've got to think about the future of our world. You know, what, what does it mean? I mean, even the inequality and poverty problems that we have in the world, my view is that we created them. Rob, I think any projections coming down the road of what it would do to displacing people, for example, are mind boggling, right? If you think about them, you suddenly go, I, I, don't, I don't understand, what are we going to do, right? And I think that piece needs to be made more salient to folks, right? I think we do have a job as edu educators in some sense to make that piece salient um, and both to, to students and I think to every leader, every single leader around, whether it's business, government, nonprofit, every single one. If you think about the amount of human displacement that will come our way, if we don't do anything, uh, the world will not look like any version of what we think, even the pandemic version, right, which has been pretty bad. At the risk of blaspheming with the Global Business School Network, and I'm going to ask the mathematician uh, in the room, whether there, there isn't a question here of, of a need as far as higher education goes, more of a focus on humanities as a, you know, using the, the concept of Ubuntu, I am because you are. Are we embedding, shouldn't we be embedding more of that in the teaching across board and just raising the consciousness of, as you say, what we've created, what we're destroying and, and doing that in parallel with the innovation, but th that being the basis with which we innovate. I would agree completely. Um, so so perhaps it's, it's about showing how everything fits together not just teach, I mean, oftentimes they teach the humanities and that's whatever. I think, I think that's important, but it's also indicating how it fits together with physics, how it fits. So how this whole thing fits together, it's important. Usually we teach in silos and that's the weakness of our current education model, basic and higher education. And, and there are innovations in the world that are disrupting that model, that way of seeing education. I, I have to say mainstream universities are, are, are not, are, are generally change averse. So it's not so easy to change basic policy, whatever, but disruptions, disruptors, education disruptors who come with models. The one question that I ask always is that, I mean, the mo some of the models are, are interesting, can be useful, can work. Uh, my only challenge is, uh, uh, them not recognizing where they land. So you can, you, you, you recognizing the inequality of the world and the narratives of development and advancement that actually that perpetuates the, the kind of human that we, educated person that we are, we are producing. So 
even if you have something innovative, you've got to recognize where does it land and how do we break this cycle that that um, uh, of growth? What this this is what advancement looks like. This is what it means that I have I have succeeded. This is what you buy, what you eat, what you, whatever, how you behave. But but that's not you're not considering the sustainability of our world. So so. So I, I agree completely, but but I think you've got to do it differently. It's not just it's not a competition between mathematics and history. Systems again, it's systems, right? I yeah. need to understand all the other bits and pieces that fit in. Uh, Rob, I, I agree. You need humanities, but you need it all in some grand sense. Unfortunately, I will say we're starting to. Um, I think the pandemic has forced us to start to think about how we teach and learn a little more. I, I'm taking a class in immunology. I've been at MIT for a decade and I've never taken a class. You know, it means a 15 minute walk across campus. I'm really busy, I won't do it. I'm now taking a class in immunology because I was like, I don't understand this stuff and it's happening around us, right? I hope that, I'm, I'm not saying I wanna teach that way all the time because it's really not great. But, but you know, for things like, you know, I wanna learn, it's actually been really useful to have Zoom and I, go watch a lecture and I don't have to, you know, trek across campus. So I do think we'll have, we'll come out of this crisis having learned something and hopefully, you know, we'll start to think about the next one. So as we, we wrap up, I'll ask, whip around the room and, and look towards 2030, look to, beyond that uh, towards uh, the African agenda. Carl, starting with you, what's the biggest opportunity? that you see, where, where should we, where's the, the, the low hanging fruit? It is partnerships, you know, and when I look at the SDGs, SDG 17 is the only one that I'm interested in because without the partnerships, the 16 others don't work. So if we then make sure that we think about core capabilities of each institution, each individual, we can then harness, you know, that power of, of collaboration to deliver on the change that we want to see in our communities. Right, Prof? You know, for me, it's, it's uh, I agree with Carl, but I also think it's about young people. You know, how we ignite the passion and what. And I was inspired, I mean, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, uh, Eric Schmidt started to make this call to top universities in the world, for young people to come up with big ideas, projects to reimagine the future and 20 of them were going to be selected. And, 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 and we went on UCT to mobilize our students to whatever, only 20 would be selected. And there we are, an African university has got the highest number of winners in the 20. Four, young, young Africans who came up with big ideas on Reimagine, competing with students from all over the world, top universities only, right? They were selected or whatever. And, and I thought, I sat here, I still get goosebumps thinking about what that, what that means for us. And I looked at the students. I mean, these are UCT students, right? One is a first year law student. I mean, they submitted last first year, young black African student from a township. She didn't even finish paying her fees for 2020. She won this money and she owed fees for 2020. Just tells you about her, her background, right? And here she's one of the four who won this opportunity. And you have this four, all of them, I mean, some of them, but two of them post-grad, two of them undergrad. But, but I, I just thought that we, we've, got, we've got potential, we've got capacity. We are, so I, I, I believe in Africa's capacity to become a global leader. And, and, and I think these kinds of opportunities that, 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 that are offered for young people to show up, to reimagine the future, uh, give me confidence. And I want to invest even more in young people because they, they are the ones who will carry, who carry us ahead. And, and, I, and for me, they're the ones I want to, to change how they think about um, uh, our world because you, you want a new kind of human being to emerge from, from this era. Thanks. Need, you, you've got the, the, the final. I, it's not fair. They took like the best ones. And that story actually gave me goosebumps. So thank you for giving me goosebumps this morning. It's a good way to start the day. 
Rob, let me not answer your question and do something else. I don't think this is low hanging fruit. I think it's high hanging fruit. If there's such a thing, I don't know what you call it, high hanging fruit, whatever you call it, the opposite. Yeah. I, I think we need leaders. I think we're missing leaders. We need leaders in government who are not squabbling over corruption. We need leaders in private sector. Like I just said, step up and do something about climate change. Don't wait for the government. You can't, it's too late. Uh, it's not a low hanging fruit. If it was, we would have done it. So. I, I can't answer the low-hanging fruit. I think they got that. But I think the thing we're really, really in need of is people who have a vision of a longer term to step up and lead. And there's no time like now to do it. And that I think we really need is leaders on the ground who can take us through the next crisis um, and bring us through what's coming down the road. And so I would say that's what we need. Um, and, you know, and, I think we should all do our parts in trying to help build those. Well, I can't thank you enough, Tavnit Suri, Carl Mandan, and Mamacheti Pakeng for your time. Also want to remind you that our next session, session five of this Talent for Africa Forum, as brought to you by the Global Business School Network and Echo Bank Academy, is all about powering digital transformations. For more on our Talent for Africa forum with Ecobank Academy, visit gbsn.org slash talent for Africa. And that's the numerical four. Please remember to click and subscribe to the podcast and feel free to rate us if you've enjoyed listening. Until next time, take care.